Well, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 to 9, and then we'll pray and uh, we'll get to work. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, reads like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you, by your spirit, through that word, would speak. We want to hear from you loud and clear. And God, I'm praying for my church family. I'm praying that you would give each and every one of us a resilient hope because of the confidence that we have in the salvation that we received in Christ. So I pray that you would do your work in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been interesting the last few years. Uh, I feel like one of the things as a part of my job is to simply observe people and to, to try to get kind of a, a baseline of how people are interacting with the world around us. And it's been fascinating to watch as some people throughout the course of the last few years with all the difficulties and all the challenges, some people have grown in their Christ-likeness. They've become more tender. They've become more passionate. They have become more gentle and patient and truthful and good in all these different things. Some people have moved in that direction, and that's been incredible to watch. But, uh, but a vast majority of people have moved in a different direction. Some people have become jaded and cynical and hardened and abrasive and combative and all these different things. And so my question has kind of been along these lines. What is the difference? I mean, what, what caused people to go in one direction or the other? What, what caused some people to become more like Christ and some people to kind of reveal maybe what was there all along, but the difficulties provoked them? What was the difference? And as best as I can tell, it really does come down to what people hope in, what people place their confidence in, what people are ultimately all about. And that has come to the surface in many ways in these years. And so that's my thesis, and, and I believe that's also what Peter is suggesting here. When he's writing in the first century to the church, scattered as they are, about to go through all the challenges that they will face, I think his concern is pastoral. How can he help people become more like Christ? How can he help people become more resilient, more tender, more confident, more compassionate? And what he says here in his letter essentially is, as believers in Christ, there are some pretty incredible resources available to you. And you can become resilient and hopeful in this season. So I believe that that's what he's saying here in this letter. And I'm going to show you from our text today 
a few different aspects of this resilient hope. First off, where does it come from? Where, where does somebody get this sort of dynamic within the soul? Secondly, what is it founded on? What is it aimed at? And then finally, what does it accomplish in the life of a believer? So let's get to work here. First off, the starting point or where, where hope comes from, it's, it's really a work of God. And that's why in verse 3 it starts like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever he's going to say here, he is basing it off of the activity of God himself. And he's worshiping. He's writing to a people and they're going through difficult times, but he's able to say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a singing religion. We cannot help but acknowledge that God has done something great on our behalf and we need to express it. And one of the ways that we do that is we come together week by week and we lift our voices in praise and adoration of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes why. Verse 3, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. He tells us something here. He says, listen, Christians are a people who have been born again, would be another term that we could use. Christians are a people who have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have this thing about us. If you're a Christian, you have something about you that, that is described as being remade by God. And what I want to say here is that the difference, there's a dividing line in the soil here. Do you remember when Nicodemus, a religious leader, in John chapter 3 goes to the Lord to ask him some questions? He's a teacher. Nicodemus is a teacher. Jesus of Nazareth is this fascinating teacher. Um, and he goes to him, and, and he begins to interact with him. And the Lord says, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? This teacher in Israel is like, okay, I, I know what you're talking about, but why don't you run that by me one more time? Right? He doesn't get it, and he acknowledges as much, but he says, what do you mean? I mean, clearly you can't mean that somebody must enter a womb a second time and, and be born again in that regard. And Jesus says, no, this is a work of the Spirit and, and the water, and, and this is something that is necessary for somebody to be a new creation. You must be born again. When we talk about the hope that I'm describing here and the hope that Peter will go on to, to outline throughout this letter, one of the things that you have to acknowledge is it is a different kind of hope. It is a living hope, and it is on account of being remade by God, being born again. And if you've not experienced that, then everything that I will describe will sound good. It'll sound compelling, but it'll feel nonsensical. Meaning you'll hear it and you'll go, okay, there are certain people who can go through life and they have this kind of resiliency about them and it looks beautiful and it looks compelling, but I'm not sure that's true of me. Because this is not something that we can accomplish in our own strength. This is a work of God. There's a moment in the life of a person who becomes a Christian where they acknowledge what God has done in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And they place their faith in him for salvation and they surrender their lives to him, and they entrust themselves entirely to him. And, and what happens behind the curtain then, as the Bible describes it, is that they become new. They become remade. They become born again. And if you want that experience, it's available. God offers that freely to us, that we would receive him by faith and experience the new birth. But but the, here, here's the point that I'm making. Some, some people will show up to our church on a Sunday morning. Maybe they're sitting here today. 
And what they want is a little bit of spirituality. They want a little bit of Christianity to try to help them along. They're just trying to be better people. And so they're turning out and they're showing up and they're singing songs and they're, they're being instructed in all these different things, but they have not been born again. And so what I'm going to define and describe here will, will feel strange to them. But if you are a believer in Christ and if you are born again, you have received a living hope because you have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's, that's an incredible reality. It's a game changer. Remember Peter, uh, when he saw his Lord and Savior arrested and accused and brought before a kangaroo court and charged for the most ironic of charges, he's being executed for being the king of, claiming to be the king of the Jews. That's exactly who he is. And then he's executed And then he's placed in a tomb, his body, his lifeless body, placed in a tomb. And in that moment, it feels like all hope is lost. The one that that we've been following all along, he's done, he's gone. But then he emerges from the tomb and he's alive and he is alive and very well. And he begins teaching and instructing his followers. And Peter's saying, listen, if you're a Christian and you've placed your faith in him, that's a preview of coming attraction. Though he died, yet he lives. Though they place him in a tomb, the the tomb could not hold him. It had no claim on him. And so Peter is reminding us, if you're a follower of him, no matter what's going on in the world, if you're mistreated, maligned, if you're arrested, if you're stripped of your possessions, if you're mocked and ridiculed, if your physical health is in in jeopardy, is threatened by others, if if they arrest and kill you, that is not the end. Death doesn't get the final word here. You have been born again into a living hope. Ed Clowney puts it like this, God's elect have a hope that is as sure as Christ's resurrection. What you have is as sure and certain as the reality of Jesus Christ resurrected and alive and well. So that is very helpful. It's a reminder. It's who we are. If you're a Christian, this is what you have. You are born again into a living hope. That's where it comes from. Secondly, we find out what hope is aimed at, or the reward of hope. We have, verse 4 says, we've been born again into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You have something that is coming your way that is not in jeopardy. You have something that belongs to you that God is keeping for your sake and he's keeping you for it, and it is something that is never going to, to fade away. It's a good thing. You don't have to wring your hands and wonder, I hope, the, you know, I hope the market doesn't collapse in heaven. You know, I hope things don't go sideways and all, all of my hope vanishes. No, no, no. This is something that is unmovable. It can never perish or spoil or fade. And if you have that hope, then you have something that can bolster your faith no matter what's going on on earth. You have a treasure in heaven. Verse 4 goes on to say, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's telling us that God is, he's he's holding it for us and he's saying, it's in good hands with me. I'm going to keep this for you and I'm going to keep you for it. I'm shielding this reward for you and I'm shielding you for it. Now, if that is true, that changes everything, or it should. If that is true, that should change everything about life on earth. C.S. Lewis, the famous author of the children's narrative, uh, 
why it's escaping my mind right now, Chronicles of Narnia. And you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with him and, and with his writing. But he wrote a lot of other things, too. He wrote Mere Christianity, which were wartime talks that were transcribed into a book. But, but he said this, and I think this is very insightful. He said, don't let your happiness depend on something you might lose. Don't let your happiness depend on something that is vulnerable, that could be taken from you. And the truth is, as you, as you look at how we handle the world, most of our happiness is ultimately based on these sorts of things. I'm going to give you a few examples, and we could multiply them all day long, but, but one of the things that uh, sometimes we will, we will place our hope in is the stuff of this world. And then when those things start to fade or they're in jeopardy, we, we lose all confidence. So for instance, I grew up doing action sports like skateboarding and, and wakeboarding and surfing and those sorts of things. And um, for much of my life, some of my hope was bound up with that. Yesterday, however, I was hanging out with my kids in the driveway, and Harrison wanted to skateboard, and I got him a, a miniature skateboard, so we were doing some tricks, and he's like, Daddy, you're really good at this. But I'm at a point now where I have to show them photos. Like, this is what Daddy used to do. And I, I fell down yesterday, and I got up, and I was like, oh, man. And it was like a slow motion, lamest fall ever. I wasn't doing anything cool. I just kind of spilled. And, you know, I, I get up and I'm like, oh, my wrist hurts and my shoulder hurts and my knee hurts and everything hurts. And it's going to take me, it's going to take me a long time to recover from that. So listen, if my hope is based off of my ability to do a sport, it's in jeopardy. If, if you're if your hope is based off of your physical ability to do something, you understand, don't you, as we get older, it's fading fast, right? Our ability, we look at the kids around here, we're like, you have no idea, enjoy it. But if it's in that, it's in jeopardy. What if it's in our health, though? I know some people that uh, for, for the longest time, there's kind of a false narrative in our society that if we did all the right things, we could protect ourselves. We could be healthy and safe. You eat well, you exercise, you do those different things, but but I'm, I'm sure you're well aware that there are people who have done everything right and they get a, they get a diagnosis of a terminal illness. And it's just out of the blue and you're like, I can't believe it. Or, or they get sick and, and next thing you know, everything about their life is very, very different. If, you're, if your happiness is bound up with your health, it's in jeopardy. If your happiness is bound up with even your family, I think sometimes we, we look at family members, especially those of us with small kids, and, and that's our happiness, Right? We, we, bound up, we bind up our happiness with them. But we know that, man, that's a dangerous place to locate our hearts. We're all, always vulnerable. I mean, we, like we send our kids off to school, they come home, they say, they say things, and we're just devastated by them. So if, you're, if, you're, if your heart is bound up with your family, it's in jeopardy. Or politics, I think that's a big one that I've seen in the last couple of years where people, they, and here's how I know that it's so significant to them. They use language of salvation, and language of, you know, apocryphal language. So on the one hand, and this is true of both ends of the spectrum. I'm not picking on anyone. I pick on everyone. On both ends of the spectrum, people will say things like this. If this policy or this um, party or this person gets what I want, it would save us. That's salvific language. And then on the opposite, you know, on the other end, you're saying, and if these things don't go well, that's, that's, destruction. That's devastation. And a lot of times, you, what I've noticed is when people's hearts are bound up with their political ideas, then they're, they're in a rough spot. You look at the world and listen, you can read the Bible or you could read history 
nations go through all kinds of different stuff. And if you're going to ride that ride, it's going to, it's going to buck you. It's going to be a rough one for you because there are going to be some good leaders. There are going to be some poor leaders. But if your confidence is, is based on that, it's going to be very disappointing in one season or another. So Christians are those who place their happiness and their hopes in the future, in the inheritance that we have. We place our confidence in what God is ultimately doing for us, and, and it helps us out tremendously. C.S. Lewis again, he says, listen, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective. Most of us, we, we could probably stretch our minds as hard as we can to think about the time when we last were sitting there thinking about the inheritance that is ours, the, the age to come, and we might have a hard time even remembering ever doing that. We need to become a people who say, my inheritance is in heaven, and that's going to be a dominant thought in my heart and in my mind at all times so that I might be more effectively engaged in the here and now. Let me, let me illustrate this briefly with just a common example, and you'll see. If you think about heaven, it will help you. If you think about the reward that is, that is coming down the pipe, that is yours in Christ, it will help you tremendously. My parents own Williams Tree Farm. One of the jobs there is to trim the Christmas trees. You get these big machetes and you go out in the field with your uh, safety equipment on and you march around and you, you, just like you would do for your landscaping in your yard, you're cutting the new growth to shape the tree like you would want it, you know, to put presents under it. So you go out there and every tree needs to be trimmed. It is really hard work. Um, you do it during the summertime so it's hot. You go out first thing in the morning so you're avoiding the heat of the day. You work for several hours there in the morning. Um, there are things like ticks, and poison ivy, and a plant that if you get the oil on it, it's a photosynthetic plant, so it causes water blisters on your skin. Um, you're dealing with huge machetes. I've got a few different scars on my body from, from trimming trees at the tree farm, and you're thinking, poor, you are not selling this. It really is, it is a good job, and it is fun. I'm just saying, it's dangerous. And so we would do this job and the normal day would be a, like a 7 to noon. But, but when I was doing it back in the 90s, when I was in high school, there was a tree farm that was about two hours away. And they would call us up, and it was a smaller farm. And they would say, hey, we want to subcontract your crew. We don't have a crew. We would love for your crew to come out and to trim all of our trees. And it, it, was, uh, it was an opportunity for us. So we would get pitched to the different crew members and I'm going to paint it in this way, okay? Imagine one person gets offered the opportunity to go to this other farm and trim trees, and the, the idea is, at the end, this is going to be really hard. We're going to work at least 10 hours. We have to commute two hours there. We're getting up at five. We're getting on the road. We're going to work all day. Um, but when we finish the work, you will get a $600 check. Okay, now I'm talking about the 90s, and I'm talking about a high school student. you got to imagine, in my world, that was like, whoa, I'll get a new wakeboard. I'll do, like, I'll do all these different things. So, so that was the, the compensation for the hard work. Now imagine somebody else on the crew gets pitched the same idea. They say, hey, we can go trim trees. We get some extra hours. It's a 10-hour day, and we will pay you your ordinary wage, six bucks an hour. And uh, it'll be hard, and it'll be demanding. But, you know, if you need a little bit of extra money you know, 60 bucks, and you're a kid, and, you know, why not? Okay, now, 
think with me about the different experience of those two individuals. What would it be like for the person who, who stands to make 600 bucks? The alarm goes off in the morning. They're not a morning person, but they're like, hey, it's a great day. We're going to go do some hard work. They get in the van. They cruise, you know, drive for two hours. They get to the field. It's all covered in dew, and they're soaking wet, and they're putting their bug spray on and doing all this stuff. And throughout the course of the day, they're getting blisters, and they're re-taping their hands and doing all this stuff. And maybe they get stung by a bee, and all these things are going on. But they're like, look, this is just a part of the gig. It's okay. We're going to get our $600 at the end. What about the kid who's making six bucks an hour? The alarm goes off. They're like, I do not like my life. And they roll out of bed reluctantly, and they get in the van reluctantly, and they get there, and their feet are wet, and they start doing the work, and they're like, why did I ever sign up for this? Why did I ever agree to do this? This is bogus. And the day keeps going on, and things are hard, and different demands are, are expected of them, and they're complaining the whole time. You see, there's a tremendous difference if you understand the compensation. And that's the point that Peter is making here that I'm trying to make today if you understand the inheritance that you stand to gain, and you think about that often, it will transform how you live. Difficulties will come. We are not shielded from them. Difficulties will come. Trials will come. Things will be hard. It'll be demanding. But if you keep reminding yourself, I have an inheritance, and that inheritance is worth everything. If you believe that, that will help you out tremendously. You will become far more effective and navigating life in a fallen and hostile world. Now listen, most Christians do not do this. It's out of our minds. We don't think about this often enough. And part of the reason why is we've kind of undertaught Christians for the most part. I'm going to give you an example. I think this is the most popular message in contemporary Christianity. I'm going to show you why it's unhelpful. In contemporary Christianity, a lot of spiritual leaders, myself included, have said things like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true, it's just not complete. That's true, it's just not the, the whole story. And the way that, that it's often justified is to proof text Jeremiah 29, 11, and to say, and you guys, I'll say it and you'll know it, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. And you say, right on, that sounds amazing, that's wonderful. And we just keep pressing that. And people say, that's awesome. God loves me. He has a wonderful plan for my life. He's going to take care of me. He's going to prosper me. He's got a hope and a future for me. The problem is, Jeremiah 29, 11 comes in Jeremiah chapter 29. And do you know what the messaging there is? The people of God, the Israelites, have been defeated by their enemies. The army came in and smoked them. And then they took a bunch of residents and they carried them off. They deported them. They took them into exile. And now they're away from their hopes and their dreams and their homeland. And they're upset about it. And people come to them and they say, hey, you know those songs you guys like to sing? Sing them for us. And they say, we can't. We have hung up our instruments. We're done with that. We're so frustrated by what's going on in this world, we can't even sing. And then God has a message for them through the prophet Jeremiah. And he comes along and he says, here's what God says. You're going to be here for 70 years. Do the math here, okay? If God came today and he said, everything that you're hoping for was taken from you, but listen, God's got a, a word for you. In 70 years, he'll restore it all. Do the, I'm 40. I'm not there. I'm looking at most of you. You're not there either, right? 
We, we don't get back into the, the, the promised land, if that's the messaging today. And in the midst of that, Jeremiah has the audacity to say, here's what you need to do then. Build houses, plant vineyards, settle down, pray for the city in which you reside. And then he says, here's what God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And he spills that, that promise. But you, you have to take the promise in the context and go, well, maybe it doesn't look exactly like we thought. Maybe it doesn't mean that God's going to make everything all better immediately. And honestly, as a pastor, that's where I've had to land. As I pray with some of you and I say, you know, I believe God can absolutely do an incredible work in this moment and can make things all better right now. He sometimes does that. It's a, it's a preview. But here's something that I'm confident in. Whether or not he does it right now, he will do it one day. One day he's going to set all things right. He's going to make all things new. He's going to wipe away tears and sickness and death and the old order are fading away because he is making all things new. See, we as Christians, we have to come to the conclusion that we have an inheritance and whether we get some of the spoils of it this week or whether we wait until we die, it's coming true. And if you think on that often enough, it'll help you navigate life in a fallen world. Finally, the result of hope or the, the resiliency of hope we find here in the final verses in, in verse 6 and following. If you have this sort of hope, you have the ability to, to rejoice even though you suffer. So look at verse 6. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. He's saying, look, you are looking forward and you're able to greatly rejoice. However, maybe you are going through some stuff right now that you don't feel like rejoicing in. Because you may have had to go through these trials, all these different trials, and suffered grief. But what he's saying is, it is possible as a Christian to rejoice while suffering. It is possible for a Christian to be joyful even in the midst of the most awful of circumstances. Verse 7 says the reason why is because God has a, he has a plan even for your pain. There's a purpose in it. Verse 7 says these, these trials, they have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What you're going through in this moment has a purpose. And we're not trying to whitewash it. We're not trying to diminish the pain of it. We're just acknowledging that God is able to use it for his own glory. That in the midst of that trial, one of the things that will happen is your faith will be proven. And what that means is, if you are uncertain about the quality of your faith, going through a trial will reveal the sincerity of that faith. Alan Stibbs puts it like this, God uses trials to distinguish genuine faith from superficial professions. Some people profess to follow Jesus. The trial reveals whether or not that's true. Some people say they follow Jesus, but it's not until things get very hard that all of a sudden the, the truth is exposed as to whether or not they are sincere in their faith in him. Furthermore, suffering can be an experience of instruction. Psalm 119 puts it like this in verse 67. The psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I obey your word. I, I went through something, and, and it changed my perspective. The, my faith was proven in that moment, and then 
because of my acknowledgement of what God has done, the thing that I most wanted to do was to respond in obedience and faith. The trial instructed me. And that's been my own personal story as well. Suffering has been an instrument that God has wisely used in my life for greater good. Furthermore, your suffering can be a testimony. Look at verse 8 and following. It says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He's writing to the church. And and honestly, from Peter's perspective, it's pretty wild. Peter got to walk with the Lord. He He had years with him. He had that close personal interaction. Then even after the crucifixion and resurrection, he got to physically see him and continue to be instructed by him for those 40 days. Now he's writing to a people who have never physically seen him. And he's almost amazed by it. Like that you believe in him is a, is a demonstration of the power of God. Because it's not just that seeing is believing. It's that you believe even though you've not seen him. Remember Thomas? Thomas had a hard time because he wasn't present when the resurrected Lord showed up for the rest of the gang. And they tell him, he's, he's alive, he's well. And Thomas goes, ooh, I don't, think I, I, I don't think I buy that. He says, unless I see him, unless I lay my own eyes on him and can see those wounds that I saw were inflicted on him, unless I personally see him, I don't think I can believe. And, and the Lord made that provision for him, and he showed up again. And he revealed himself to Thomas. And Thomas sees him, and he confesses, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus says something very profound. He says, Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, there's something about us living today who've not had that personal, physical interaction with the Lord. And if we trust in him, there's something impressive about that. In fact, as we move further into this chapter, angels are astonished by the message of Jesus Christ and our belief in him. But we, we believe in him and we walk through these trials by faith. And here's one of the things that it's accomplishing then. It is testifying to the reality of Jesus Christ. If people see us and they see our lives falling apart around us and we look like everyone else, that doesn't communicate anything significant. That's normal. If things are going poorly and you're falling apart, that's just normal. That's life as a human. If you're going through life and things are falling down around you, and your confidence is in Christ, and you're rejoicing in him with this glorious and inexpressible joy, that's different. People take note of that. They go, wait a minute. Why aren't you wringing your hands? Why aren't you freaking out? Why why aren't you angry? And you say, because I have a hope in Jesus Christ, and nothing and no one can take that from me. No circumstance can rob me of that joy. No situation in life can can cause me to fail, to recognize what he has done for me. I therefore rejoice in my suffering. If you are a Christian then, and I hope that you are, you are receiving the goal of your faith. Look at verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You therefore can go through the hardest of things with confidence in God. So Christians are a people who are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have an inheritance, something that is worth it all. Therefore, when we suffer, and we will, when we suffer, we are unmoved by it. We, we feel all of it, we feel the depth of it, but we are not destroyed by it. 
Our greatest hope is in Christ and in his saving work, and we therefore are joyful, though suffering, and we are receiving the salvation of our souls. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you, by your Spirit, would help each and every one of us to, to come to know you in that profound way that you've described in 1 Peter, in a way that is sincere, in a way that transcends everything about life in this fallen world, and not in a way that makes us aloof or remote or removed or unconcerned about the world around us, but, but a faith that actually inspires us to be fully present and fully engaged because we know that we have a God who saved us and is at work in this world calling people to himself. Help us, Lord, to be a church full of people who are born again into a resilient and living hope. And help us to live then in a way that is pleasing to you for your glory. Amen.